is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company on the Country Hour this Friday. And yes... There's more results from Fat Bear Week. I'll be sharing those with you before one o'clock and taking a look at who those winners will be contending with next week. That has been bringing me quite a lot of joy and I've got to tell you, looking at Fat Bear pictures is a great way to spend some time. On the show today, though, we will talk about some other issues, including the scientific breakthroughs that could shape the future of agriculture. And there's some pretty wild scenes in the northwest when it comes to native rats. We'll take a look at the reasons why their numbers are so huge at the moment. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour. As always, I'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text. I've enjoyed spending some time with you in the afternoons, but today will be my last program. Amy and Ali will be back in action next week. So here's your chance to send me a text 0487-993-222 as always. We're going to start today with the mango season. It's heating up in northern Australia and you need to keep your eyes peeled in the supermarket for some new varieties. They've been given names and they are yes aha and now what do you think about those names for mango varieties i'd like to hear your suggestions 0487 the new varieties are yes aha and now but as matt brand reports these three new mango varieties have been decades in the making Around 25 years ago, the National Mango Breeding Program created three new varieties of mango, which promised to taste great, look better, yield better, and have a bunch of other positive attributes. But for years, these mangoes languished on research farms and their commercial rollout was bungled a few times. But last year, the company Mambaloo Mangoes was awarded the commercialisation rights and these mangoes will now be seen in supermarkets this season and they've finally got names. One is called Yes, the Yes Mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Aha. The later season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now Mango. So we've got yes, aha, and now. That is Marie Picconi from Mambaloo Mangoes, who says more trees are being planted, and she thinks these mangoes have got a big future. The good news is that all three varieties have flowered very well in all the production regions, and there's crops sitting on the tree. Uh, We're expecting double the production that we had last year out of the three new project flavour mangoes. Um, we think they've got a tremendous future. So um, it's, it's going well. We've got lots of demand from export markets. We're really just sending samples at the moment because right. we've, got to, we've got to get the trees in the ground um, all growing up so that the, the yield and the production volumes are higher um, and there are new plantings going in so that we can just meet the demand as it's growing. We're going to try to grow with the demand here in Australia 
and in global markets. Raymond Bin is a mango grower in far north Queensland. And back in 2010, he was one of the first to sign up to these hybrid varieties and plant some trees. He told Charlie McKillop that he's long believed in them and is excited to finally see the commercial rollout. Look, the names are definitely, people would just say, they're, they're different. Like everyone that decided to, they do sort of, it takes them back. Yeah, they are different names, but um, on saying that, they are catchy for that reason. And I think, look, it may actually hit the mark. Like they're very simple names. And um, yeah, look, it may just, just work. So yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. You always believed in the potential of these hybrid varieties. Nothing in the in the, the delays and the, the setbacks has, has shaken that confidence? Look, the trees haven't changed. Through all that time, the, the trees have always remained the same. So your belief in the actual, the manga that comes off them, that doesn't change. I guess where things became unknown was everything else around it is in the fact of, yeah, at the beginning there, like I couldn't get the trees from where they're supposed to come to. The company that was taken on the marketing, well, I don't think they were really geared up to do the job that was required. So there was a few years lost there. So look, it does, from a grower's point of view, it does, it just makes you feel very uncertain about how things are going to pan out and it does make you concerned because like my belief in the mango hasn't ever changed but yeah the marketing side has been real my real concern and look seeing that Manbalu came on board like they did come on board um, did a bit last year and like look it has been positive I have to say like the changes that happened it was a complete turnaround to what has happened in the past so yeah as a grower I'm more than happy. In a season where mango yields are down right across northern Australia, Mr Ben says his yes and aha mangoes are performing quite well. So, yeah, look, it is really good to see that. Um, they Look, they do seem to be a bit more consistent in having crops every year, and I hope that over time we'll see that. Um, so, yeah, that is a positive to see that. It does make you go, well, I'm glad that I took this step and having a go with it. Ian Baker was involved in the early days of the National Mango Breeding Program and can actually remember eating these varieties in the late 1990s. He says to see them being named and rolled out commercially is significant. Oh, for, for me, this is a long, long project and it's great to hear. And I think uh, Marie Piconi at Manblue Mangoes will do the right job commercialising this. Um, there's growers out there got them now. Uh, not a lot, but, but they're out there, so we'll start to see them on the shelves. So. Yeah, the future, the future for these things is great. You tasted them some 25 years ago. Why has it yep. taken so long for them to reach so, this point? Yeah, so breeding tree crops is hard. It's hard to actually do the breeding bit, like they're make, doing the cross-pollinations. All that takes a long, long time. The hard bit, though, in this case has been getting the commercialisation right, and that's where this has fallen over a number of times, and that's why I think Manblue Mangoes and Marie especially probably going to make the difference here. Is how do you get these things out onto farm and into the supermarkets? Um, and that's not an easy – that's been the difficult task here, the commercialisation phase. And uh, you can't just give it to farmers and say, here, plant it and see what you think, you know. You've got to do that, but you've got to be very careful about how you manage that going into the supermarkets. And then every every everything's going to have a problem. Like you think you've sorted it all out as a scientist, and then the farmers plant it and they plant, you know, 
a lot of trees of it and they find out, oh, no, there's this problem or there's that problem. So there's always things to manage. So in this case, the commercialisation phase of it's been the difficult bit. But I think, you know, as I said, I think uh, Mambly and Mangoes might be able to make it work. So that's the key thing. And, they're ve- look, they're very good. Um, I've got friends of mine who planted significant numbers of them. And um, they've look, been down the farm and had a look. And, uh, look, they look great. Ian Baker, who was involved in the early days of the National Mango Breeding Program, speaking to Mango Matt Bran. And what do you think of those names? Yes, Aha and now zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. Let me know your thoughts on those names. You know, Ray Bin says they're a little different. Different might be good. Yes, aha and now. Each of them has an exclamation point at the end, so that is part of the pronunciation in my view. Zero four eight seven double nine three triple two to send me a text. The Voice to Parliament referendum. How will you vote? For everything you need to know to make your decision, the ABC has you covered. From the latest news and analysis. To videos and podcasts. Like the Referendum Explained podcast on the ABC Listen app. And more information you can trust on ABC News Digital. Everything you need to know before you vote on October 14 in the Voice to Parliament referendum. Go to news.abc.net.au. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It's 14 past 12. From developments in mangoes to other scientific breakthroughs that could shape the future of agriculture. Michael Robertson is the CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Director and he's addressed the question of what future breakthroughs could change the industry at a cropping group event. He says while breakthroughs sometimes feel sudden, they typically come after many years of work. Often when we talk about science, we do think that breakthroughs happen very quickly and we have high expectations about discoveries leading to practical outcomes for people very quickly. But often in science, particularly in agriculture, where it's a complex system, it can often take 20 years from that initial bright idea or discovery about something to when you see an outcome, say, in the hands of a farmer. You said there should be a focus on, uh, on you use the phrase, breaking tech lock-ins? Yeah, we call this technology lock-ins where farming has evolved to be um, matched with particular sets of technologies it uses. So, for example, grain growing in Australia has very much evolved to be monoculture crops grown in large paddocks with big machinery. And if you think about maybe different sorts of technologies being available for farmers, you then opens up possibilities about whether some of those ways in which we grow grain, for example, could be quite different. Now, some practical breakthroughs you talked about, things like uh, on-farm energy generation and then related to that on-farm chemical production, fertiliser production. I, I noticed a lot of interest in the room when you, when you spoke about those things. How realistic are they and how far away do you think they are? There is work underway at the moment funded by the GRDC looking at small-scale mobile on-farm production of, say, urea fertiliser that would be obviously created through um, energy being generated on that farm as well. You can see there's possibilities here that aren't too far away. CRISPR, you mentioned, that's a a gene editing technology for people who aren't familiar with it. I think you said there is some some reluctance in some sectors to wade into the CRISPR area, but do you see a role for CSIRO there? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
there's a few issues here. One is that there are there's still a little bit of murkiness about the regulatory pathway for getting these uh, new genetic technologies into crops and approved. So that means that often companies doing breeding for the grains industry um, are holding back a bit. Second thing is that if they were to go overseas and use, say, an international provider to do it for them, there's issues there around how you then bring that material back into Australia. And so this then opens up the question, well, could CSIRO step in here and provide an opportunity to, to bring those new technologies more quickly to market to benefit grain growers? Plant protein, obviously, it's a big growth market and a big interest in it in the, in the cropping zones that we have a plant protein facility in Horsham, for example. What what do you see as the future in, in that sector? Well, we know for a fact um, the world population and its dietary needs means we're going to need to produce more protein and just producing it from farm animals won't be enough. We need to think about growing the plant protein part of that too. Um, so there's a real opportunity here for traditional commodity producers of pulses in Australia to have a new line of business that might involve grains being used to extract um, new isolates, new um, forms of protein to be used as food ingredients. And you're right, there are companies already doing this in Australia. They're needing help to scale, um, both from the processing side of it, but also sourcing enough stock from farmers as well of the right quality. Now that's plant protein. You also talked about traditional protein sources, red meat, and about the fact that a large majority of the value from an animal comes from a small amount of the meat and a large amount of the meat is actually quite low valued. Just summarise for me a project that you're involved with looking at increasing the value of some of that meat. Yeah, this is thinking about alternative uses for that lower value part of the carcass that maybe traditionally would go into something like, say, a pet food or some other form of low value product. We've been looking at whether we can take that meat from the lower value part of the carcass, dry it, powder it, remove the meaty flavours from it and some of the other things that you don't want, and using it as a protein, soluble protein extract that could go in as an ingredient into various food and drink products. And a lot of excitement from the meat industry around this. Michael Robertson, he's CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Director, and he was speaking with Angus Farley. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 19 minutes past 12, and I'd like to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 There are three new mango varieties that, after 20 years in the making, finally have names. And those names are Yes, Aha, and Now. What do you reckon? Do you reckon they'll work to market these new varieties? 0487-993-222 is the number to send me a message. Now this weekend, an Outback Rodeo is going to be a lot more than just bucking bulls and cowboys. It'll be playing a role in giving young offenders a second chance. A group of inmates will for the first time be allowed to participate in the Alice Springs Rodeo as part of a program to reduce reoffending and help them prepare for a life back in society. Victoria Ellis reports. Jefferson Woody can't change his past, but he's determined to have a positive future. The 19-year-old is an inmate at the Alice Springs Correctional Centre. I'm from down, but I've come up here to get away from trouble. Mr Woody has been granted a second chance. He'll ride a bull at the Alice Springs Rodeo as part of a program to reduce crime and reconnect young offenders with community. How are you feeling about that upcoming bull ride? Pumped, scared, but yeah, good. Never, never seen a bull in my life. 
to spend most of my time beyond bars. So, yeah, it's a new experience, life experience, you know, try to get the best out of it, meet new people. Is it also kind of about, you know, participating in community again? Yeah, just because I spent a long time already beyond, you know, good to get reintegration and actually do meet new people so I can fit in the community when I do come out. And this could, this could be something I could get in, interested in too, you know. It's the first time correctional services have allowed prisoners to ride in a rodeo. Offenders aged 18 to 25 are taking part in the program after being jailed for a range of crimes, including domestic violence. It's Blair Carroll, I'm the general manager of the Alice Springs Correctional Centre. The concept of having the guys come and ride at the radio is a continuation of what we're trying to plan for the young offenders within the correctional system. Um, we've taken a real focus towards uh, picking up those that we've identified as, as troubled and um, trying to make sure by the time they get released from custody they're better um, attuned to what awaits them outside and plus we've given them all the skills, the life skills and the tools I suppose to um, make a better go of it. The impact for these young offenders is that they get a, um, a greater level of pride, achievement and um, you know, from a mental health perspective they're stepping outside their normal framework or the norms that they have um, and achieving something they wouldn't ordinarily um, achieve or do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do. The program comes as crime in Alice Springs and the Northern Territory has been making national headlines. Marie Corbo runs a men's behaviour change program through Tangangira Council in Central Australia. Anything that we can do, that we can work with men towards um, their change process, I think is really important. And there's a lot of different ways that that can happen. And also in different options such as this, which really um, assist men to build their sense of self, their self-esteem and to be included within the community. Aboriginal man Michael Little also works with men in Alice Springs to stop domestic violence. Oh, the need for this sort of stuff to happen on a more regular basis is very much needed for Aboriginal men. This is our opportunity to shine. We face all types of issues all the time and I think with programs like this it only helps us get better and perform better much in our personal lives. He said the program would help offenders find new mentors. The main thing is changing the scenery. You know, you change your conversation, you change the people you hang around, you soon get a, a different person, and that's what needs to happen. What's his best, what's his worst, and what's his middle. So he'll change this, and we'll go to the left here, we'll come around here. Tom Edmonds is the president of the Alice Springs Rodeo Association. He's enthusiastic about the opportunities that bull riding will open up for the young offenders. It gives them an opportunity to have a crack, have a go. They've helped out here setting up all the grandstands, doing as much as work as we do, so I can't see why they cannot compete. How big of a need do you think there is for programs like this to stop reoffending in Alice Springs and Central Australia and the Northern Territory? I think it's, it's not going to be a world beater, but I think it will be an avenue with footy and all other sports programs that are out there that will put them on the right track, maybe lead on to going elsewhere across Australia to ride and, and just give them another outlet and, and give them a bit of a station background and 
might opportunity to go back on the land that they've done this and they're like, oh, I really enjoyed this and there might be more opportunities out on the stations and that, so it creates jobs as well. Can you tell me a little bit about how useful that might be for the industry if this did become a pathway to get young fenders into that much needed area of working on stations? A lot of pastors and a lot of station families and managers come to these shows and, you know, it's about networking. They meet this person, meet that person and... And it just leads from there and say, that seems like a young, resilient young bloke and I want to take him on and give him a chance. I could take 10 people in my stock camp any day of the week, doesn't matter what training, I don't care, we can train them on the way. And we would, and I know there'd be about five other stations would do it. They'd literally take anyone that is willing to work and wanting to have a go and learn, we'll take him on any day of the week. And that's exactly the outcome 19-year-old Jefferson Woody is hoping for. Do you think uh, having been involved with the rural scene and having ridden a bull that you might try and find some work in the agriculture industry on a station or being a ringer or something like that maybe? Yeah, of course. Just give it a go, you know. Never know. Could take me somewhere. By you being out there in the arena and you're riding a bull, what do you think it'll show about who you are as a person? That I'm kind-hearted. Some people in the community may be wondering if the offenders really deserve the second chance. But Mr Woody has a response. Everyone makes mistakes in life, you know, no one's perfect. Everyone done bad things, just a part of life. But if you do believe in change, this is the biggest change, you know, we're only young. Coming out of, especially coming out of prison and giving the opportunity to come out and do this, is, it's a once in a lifetime, you know. Because most probably us being in prison, it's obvious we only know about criminal mentality, stealing and all the rest. But coming out and do this is one big life changing, you know. It's the best thing ever. Jefferson Woody, who is an inmate at the Alice Springs Correctional Centre, ending that report from Victoria Ellis. And you can read more about that story online by heading to abc.net.au slash rural. It's 26 past 12. In a moment, we'll head across to the Weather Bureau and get the forecast for the weekend and the early part of next week. And we've heard reports of them running across the highways, trying to break into people's houses. The rat plague in the outback is definitely challenging a lot of people at the moment. But there's a rodent expert that's warning widespread baiting could cause more problems than it solves. You'll hear from him before one o'clock. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. Public consultation is underway for a draft bundaberg Burnet Regional Water Assessment aimed at maximising water supply into the future. The release of the draft assessment follows consultation carried out by Sunwater. The Queensland Water Minister, Glenn Butcher, outlined the process to Russell Varley. We allocated three areas in Queensland. One of them, obviously, looking for the, the highest priority areas in Queensland that we wanted to make sure that we had a long look into the future about what we could do for those regions to make sure they had good water security and proper assets to support that. Uh, so we announced uh, regional water assessments uh, for one for, as you said before, the Bundaberg and Burnett region. Uh, that was commenced, the regional water assessment, in March of 2022, and it's basically designed to help unlock those potentials of, of, as we know, what Bundaberg region is one of the most important food bowls in not only Queensland but in in the nation. So that process has been led uh, over that year and a half by Sunwater, certainly talking with local key stakeholders in the region and and getting those uh, that input that they need to make sure that they can get this uh, water assessment to a point where now we're going out to public consultation on it. They've detailed it down to uh, 11 other priorities that they identified, down from about 100 
over 100 uh, actions that they looked at. Some of the things that they're, they're certainly looking at is uh, a detailed business case for the Bundaberg Irrigation Network capacity upgrade of Stage 2. Uh, and as we know, uh, the importance of uh, things like Karanga Weir and Bala Weir projects uh, to make them more viable and bigger. Uh, so they certainly were part of that. Then there's other detailed business cases that we're looking to do as part of Jones Weir raising, undertaking options analysis to identify the preferred option to meet water service needs in the West Barumba system. So there's a whole heap of them. If any, if people are interested, and I guess this is the main part about it, is the regional water assessment is up on some waters website. If they want to get in and have a look at that regional water assessment, uh, then they're more than welcome to come along and have a chat with uh, Sunwater as they are going along seeking that consultation in the next few few weeks to a month. And what area does this specific assessment cover? So this is uh, obviously in the Burnett region uh, and the, the Bundaberg region. So it'll, it'll cover things right up to Mergen, uh, up to Kingaroy, Mundubra, Gainda, and, and obviously Bundaberg is one of the, the major areas. And certainly that those are uh, the water where the, the rivers flow into that catchment. And we wanted to make sure that uh, all of those those people had input and they certainly uh, have done that, particularly with the stakeholder group that was put together. Queensland's Water Minister, Glenn Butcher, and Sunwater is planning consultation activities across the region this month and next month as well as some online forums. Head to their website for more details on that. It's half past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour and there are three new mango varieties that are finally hitting the market. They're called Yes, Aha and now. I'd like to know what you think of those names for those new varieties. 0487993222 is the number to send me a text, which David from Yapoon has done. He says the new mango varieties summarise beautifully the changing government approach to horticulture. When R2E2 was developed, it was released quickly and for free, gratefully received by industry and not even given a proper name. I always thought it might have been named after a droid. Now it's one of the big four varieties grown in Australia. The new varieties have taken nearly a quarter of a century to be released, given gimmicky names and onerous royalty and marketing commitments. How times have changed. Thanks for your input, David. You can have yours as well by sending me a text message 0487 993 222. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. For some of the wettest years on record to the driest, it's been a tumultuous time for the Mary River. Researchers and volunteers have wrapped up their annual two-day data collection expedition, the Mary River Catchment Crawl. Grace Whiteside caught up with Brad Wedlock from the Mary River Catchment Coordinating Committee near Tyro at Teddington Weir. This side here, it's, the water is virtually it's stopped by the look. There's no water coming over the weir. There's no water coming down the fishway. This is a fairly stagnant pool now. So it'll be very, it'll be really interesting results that we get from here. Whereas last year, when we were here in the flood year, water was actually running over this road called Causeway here. So we've just see the difference between an extremely wet year in 2022 and it's looking like an extremely dry year in 2023. So the water quality will be very different from last year to this year with the flow. The flow makes a big difference to what we see in the water quality here. It may seem obvious, Brad, but why do you do this? What's the value of <laughs> yeah. doing this each year? Yeah, so this time of year is really crucial for a number of our threatened species. So springtime, as we're coming out of winter, the water's starting to warm up. So it actually triggers the spawning of the Mary River cod. It also triggers the spawning of the lungfish and the nesting time for the Mary River turtle. 
So those three endangered species are all starting to become far more active now. So we can track with this catchment crawl, and we've been doing it annually, we can check water temperatures, um, and that's really crucial for the spawning of the Mary River cod. They have to have a cool water temperature in before September, down to about 12 degrees, and then the warming up of that up to about 20 degrees triggers them to spawn, but it can't go beyond 20 degrees. If it does, they're less likely to spawn. So if we have open bodies of water with not much shade from riparian vegetation or have you, the temperature steep keeps rising and they, they stop spawning. Whereas if we have good cover and good vegetation, the water temperatures sort of gets insulated at about that 20 to 22 degrees, they'll keep spawning. So that's why it's really crucial right now to be out on the river looking at water temperatures and looking at the condition of the, the water, the water quality, and the, just the, the actual creek banks and river banks as well. And the Mare River turtles, they'll, they send, tend to trigger, they're triggered by some rain. So we tend to get storm rains in October, middle of October to the end of October, and then they start coming out and looking whether they should lay. They're looking for a certain... Um, moisture level in the soil, in the sand, sorry, that they lay their eggs in. Um, and once that, that moisture level's at an optimal, they then lay. And you mentioned that last year was one of the wettest years on record, and then this year is one of the driest. What sort of impact do you imagine mm. that having mm. on the Mary River and our other waterways? Yeah, so like last year being a wet year, Obviously, there's a lot of flood damage and it causes a lot of erosion and things like that. It did seem to trigger a lot of species to spawn. They were. There was a lot of activity. Um, so that's good. That was an, an, We didn't know if that would happen or not, you know. But at the same time, there was a lot of habitat was lost, like a lot of logs, hollow logs that the Mary River Cod needs are washed out onto the banks. And so that's a negative part of a flood that we do get, lose a lot of in-stream habitat. This year being such a dry year, we simply don't have the water. Um, the water holes are drying up. Where last year we may have made some gains, you know, we didn't realise that we would with, say, recruitment of Mary River Turtle and Mary River Cod. This year they're going to struggle a lot because the water holes are going to retreat back when we don't have flow, so the oxygen levels will drop. And so we could actually end up with fish kills, you know, towards Towards the end of the year into when we get hotter in January, February, um, and the water holes have retreated back to basically a very small hole. Like we've seen, seen and have seen in the Darling, we could actually have that occur here, purely because the water temperature gets so hot that then the, the fish can't cope with it and they just die. Operations Manager with the Miri River Catchment Coordinating Committee, Brad Wedlock, speaking to Grace Whiteside. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 25 to 1, and I'd like to hear your views on the new names for three new mango varieties being released to the market. They are Yes, Aha, and Now. If you'd like to share your views, 0487993222 is the number to send me a text. Now, I've got one text that says, and pop your name on there so I can say g'day, but this one says, the pronunciation has the emphasis on the ha, quiet ah, loud ha. You must be very young if you haven't heard of the band of the same name. Maybe Take On Me might feature in the ad campaign. Who can say? So, um, so aha, as opposed to aha. 
We'll uh, have to uh, go back to the tape on that one, I think. If you'd like to share your views on the new name, 0487 993 222. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Let's check in with the Weather Bureau on the forecast. Steve Hadley is on duty. Good afternoon, Steve. Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. Now, there were, you know, some some little driplets and droplets of rain in my part of the world <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, yesterday. Was there a bit of uh, moisture around? Yeah, well, we had that trough that was working its way through the southeast yesterday um, and it's continued to move up through the Capricornia region this morning. But overnight, I was looking at some of the observations and um, some of the reports there of uh, some Oh, not too, not too bad falls, although they were really isolated. Uh, 57 millimetres at Raglan Creek, just west of um, Gladstone, um, was probably about the highest I've seen. Uh, Boyne Island um, on the Boyne River, about 38 millimetres. Uh, most of that coming down in less than two hours. Even Gladstone Airport getting 15.8 millimetres last night. So, yeah, there were a few light falls around. Uh, it's mostly cleared off, cleared off the, uh, the Wide Bay and Burnett and uh, out away, away from the Capricornia now. It's just sort of pushing up a little bit further north into the Mackay region. So might we see those falls continue in that part of the state over the weekend? Yeah, so I think the, the feature that was uh, bringing those showers uh, and isolated storms, it's weakened off a bit. So I think we'll just get some showers now um, through... Um, the Central Coast region and uh, more northern parts of the Capricornia through the afternoon and evening, and then potentially further north along the north tropical coast up towards Townsville and Cairns, uh, we could see some shower activity uh, over the next 24 hours as well. I think as it continues to push a little bit further north, we'll probably see uh, the chances of um, moderate falls increasing around the Cassaroo coast uh, through the weekend particularly. Um, so some places around Innisfail and the hinterland there uh, could see around 15 to 30 millimetres of rainfall uh, on Saturday night and potentially again on Sunday as well before it sort of fizzles out altogether. And there'll be even some showers probably for the Cairns area uh, and areas further north too. But inland parts though, uh, not seeing much in the way of, uh, well even cloud cover really over the next couple of days. Really dry air has moved in across the west of the state so uh, no chance of uh, any rainfall over the next couple of days through that part of the world. Any sign of when that might change for the inland? Yeah I was hoping you'd uh, lead into that (laughs) um, (laughs) potentially uh, with the big high strengthening over the bite over the next couple of days and eventually moving into the Tasman Sea that's going to push more moisture uh, in from the east coast again so it'll be quite windy on the east coast through the weekend and that moisture will start to stream inland. A trough is expected to form over western Queensland by about Sunday and that could mean that we see some isolated showers or storm activity uh, west of about uh, Huendon to um, uh, Windora on Sunday, uh, maybe including places like Mount Isa and Baduri, so perhaps a, a slight chance of a shower storm there from Sunday. And then on Monday, it looks like probably the bigger day of Sunday and Monday, uh, the trough moves down to the southwest of the state. So particularly around the Channel Country, we could see some uh, falls of um, uh, around 5 to perhaps up to 15 millimetres uh, around parts of uh, the Channel Country, uh, probably southwest of uh, about uh, Black... Um, 
Windora at this stage uh, and southwest of Charleville. So probably focused on uh, <coughs> focused on Durham Downs and, and west of Sargaminda, I think, at this stage. Uh, and then it just sort of uh, eases away towards the early part of next week, uh, Tuesday, a couple of showers uh, through the interior and along the east coast and, and mainly fine weather for most of next week. Where does that leave us in terms of those temperatures that were so dramatically different uh, the last couple of days? Yeah, well, it's been really uh, quite cool through the west of the state. Um, some places seeing their coolest morning since uh, coolest October morning, I should say, uh, since about 2016. So, yeah, it's been a few years since we've seen a temperature that low. It even got down to uh, 1.9 degrees at Applethorpe last night. So, um, yeah, it was more like what you'd expect on average in July, not October. The October average is about nine for, for Applethorpe. So pretty cool night. That cold air is blowing, blowing um, up through uh, central parts of the state. It will start to get into the northeast as well over the next few days. So I think a lot of places will see temperatures coming down by about two or three degrees over the next few days in, in the northern areas of the state. So, yeah, cool, um, especially compared to the average, not compared to winter for mm-hmm. some places. Um, but, yeah, temperatures really sort of starting to come down. That uh, sort of colder feel uh, will be around into the early part of next week before it starts to warm up again. And in terms of the coastal forecast, I did see that there's potentially a strong wind warning for tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be uh, pretty blowy with that uh, high uh, strengthening and sending the ridge up the Queensland east coast. Uh, So we're expecting to uh, have strong winds up to 30 knots at times uh, anywhere really from the Gold Coast waters up to the Townsville Coast waters, except perhaps the the bay, uh, uh, sorry, except perhaps Harvey Bay. Uh, we're including Moreton Bay in the strong warning tomorrow. Um, for Sunday, uh, May is off a touch south of um, Sandy Cape. Uh, so uh, I think we'll still see strong wind warnings, though, uh, right from the Capricornia waters up to Townsville Coast. As always, we'll stay across the Bureau's warning on the website. Steve, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Kelly. Steve Hadley at the Weather Bureau. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. And I'm asking for your views on the new varieties of mangoes that have been launched. They are Yes, Aha and Now. And you can send me a text to share your views on 0487 993 Alan in Stanthorpe says, Hello, I'd seek a refund from the ad agency who dreamt up those stupid mango names. Alan's not a fan. Uh, t- Terry from Harvey Bay says the new mango names are silly. They could have done better. Russ says, aha, sounds okay, but I don't go much on the other two. So that's yes and now being the other two. And uh, John at Tolga says, the names for the new varieties of mangoes are very appropriate, considering how uh, things are going at the moment. John, thanks for your views. You can share yours as well, 0487 993 Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. On the way to the drop zone, you think of everything that can go wrong. What if the parachute doesn't work? Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. I remember jumping and freefall. There's so much information going into your mind. I remember landing going, what just happened? That was just insane. I never thought I could do that. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. It's 17 to 1. Long-haired rats are native to arid areas of Queensland and their populations can explode after a good wet season. 
But the rodents are currently in plague proportions from Cloncurry to Richmond, with bait flying off the shelves as locals try to keep them out of their cars, trucks, homes, paddocks and businesses. Now, Dr Luke Leung is a wildlife ecologist who specialises in rodents. He tells Adam Stephen there's one main reason that the rat population has gone exponential. Food. Food is driving that population boom and food comes from the primary production, which is triggered by huge rainfall events. So my colleagues, they study this species in the Simpson Desert. They found that you have 80% chance of having a rat plague a year after a huge rainfall events. They're known as the plague rat because they do breed up into massive numbers when the conditions are right. And at the moment, they are in plague proportions through a large part of outback Queensland. People are noticing they're a problem on farms, but they're also a problem in town as well. Why would these long-haired rats be coming into more urbanised areas? They come into town because they probably are in large number in their more natural habitat. So they're not deliberately, I'm going to go into Crown Curry tonight. They just, you know, as part of the population spread, they uh, spread over every little town in, in the outback Queensland. So it's not their natural habitat. They probably won't persist there during the dry spell, but they can survive there quite well because they also have pretty good food supply. Yeah, well, we're hearing reports of the rats gnawing away at the bottom of doors on outback stations trying to get into the house. That's how it feels anyway to the people that are living there. And we've heard lots of reports of them damaging the wirings in vehicles, you know, gnawing away at the cabling. Why do they do that? All rodents, they have very long, sharp front incisors and they grow continuously. So they must be shortened by gnawing at things, not necessarily food. So they're gnawing, you know, not because they want to eat, it's because they also want to sharpen and shorten their teeth. These plague rats, they're not the only creatures in the landscape that expand in numbers when there's lots of rats around. There are lots of their predators around as well. And, you know, I've been hearing reports of barn owls and boobooks and other raptors which are getting killed on the highway because they're coming in to eat the rats. And then lots of reports of very fat snakes and cats in the districts as well. Is that what you'd expect to see during a rat plague? Yeah, that's part of the boom and bust cycle in Central Australia. When you know when you have a primary production boom, the carnivores will come in, will harvest you know this large you know supply of rat and other prey. Dr. Luke, you're a wildlife ecologist. You've studied rodents for a long time. These long-haired rat plagues that we're living through right now, how long would they typically last? It really depends on the supply of food. If that continues you know we're following up rain or some area like Mitchell grassland you know you have moisture in the ground that can sustain growth you know of the the plant for quite a long time then the rat plate will last so there's no not a definite ending of the cycle after breeding one or two generations they'll keep on breeding until well food supply declines and then that will drive the population down Well, they're not nicknamed the plague rat for nothing. Australia's long-haired rat, a native rat in abundance in the outback right now. There's a plague of them through northwest Queensland. We've been hearing about it all week on Drive, and we're learning a bit of the science and the scientific reasoning behind these plagues from Dr Luke. He's a wildlife ecologist that studied rats. And you've also studied some of the things that might deter rats. You say that there has been a little bit of work, Luke, done on lights. Light might be uh, an effective deterrent if people want to 
try and keep the rats out of their cars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, in townships, you know, it'll cause a lot of damage to cars, you know, and other properties. But you can also use light, strong light. You turn on strong light, you know, they might not want to be seen by prayers. So strong light is、uh, a repellent. But I suppose a more permanent solution would be to erect some sort of physical barrier, corrugated iron barrier. These rats are not very good at climbing, so they might not like to climb into the、uh, enclosed area where you might park your car overnight. We know a lot of baits being used.、Um, the local suppliers can't get enough bait into some of these towns that's selling off the shelves. In a plague like this, is bait going to make any real difference? Difficult to say. Bait, obviously, you know, is, is poison and they'll kill rats. But often, baits that you buy from the shop, you know, they are very potent. Rat and mice only one single feed and they'll die. But they don't die immediately. They will take them maybe three or four days to get sick and die. So during this time, they will overdose themselves by eating more and more bait. So you're wasting bait, wasting money. You know,、um, and you're putting out much more poison in the environment. I would use the more physical method, like corrugated iron or rodent-proof your house and your garage. That's wildlife ecologist Dr. Luke Leung speaking with Adam Stephen, and it seems like the in- ingenious contraptions that I'm sure are being built in sheds all over the northwest. Might be the best way to go. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 11 minutes to one. Now, tail docking lambs is common practice for producers, and it can reduce dag and fly strike. But docking the tail too short could have serious impacts on the health of lambs. Vet and animal health consultant Joan Lloyd says the ideal length for docking is the third or fourth palpable joint. When the lamb is between two to eight weeks old, there's absolutely no advantage in a short tail. I've done research looking at the link between short docking and arthritis in lambs. So when sheep are docked short, there's research done close to 100 years ago now by the CSIRO, which clearly demonstrated that short docking leads to a greater risk of infection and delayed healing. And because of that, that then I have demonstrated a link between that and、um, higher rate of arthritis from short docking. The other problems with short docking are that you have an, an exposed perineal region. So in ewes, their vulva is then exposed, greater risk of skin cancer, so sun cancer of the of the vulva. That's directly correlated with short docking. The other issue that can happen is、um, prolapse of the rectum. Um, especially if the animals have pneumonia and are coughing, then if the short docking makes them at greater risk of prolapse of the of the rectum. And the final thing is that people think docking short means they'll have a lesser risk of fly strike, but in reality, if you dock short, you increase your risk of fly strike, and that's very clearly demonstrated by the CSIRO in their early research. When animals have their tail docked too short. They can. It affects the muscles of the tail, so they can no longer move their tail and flick the flies away. So, I what they recommended close to 100 years ago now is to dock at the fourth joint. So, I say to people, if they've moved away from mulesing, then the fourth palpable joint is where they should be docking, and、uh, that means that you reduce the risk of all of these things. You have good、uh, cover of the perineal region. You reduce your risk of fly strike, and you reduce your risk of arthritis. And if you have a, a pneumonia problem in the flock, you, you reduce your risk of rectal prolapse.
So docking too short can lead to a number of different oh. issues. Uh, docking too short is, it affects the whole life of, of that animal. And uh, I think we, it's important to, for us to set each animal up as best we can to have a, a, a good life. And we need to be aware that whatever we do to young animals at marking, if, if we dock too short, then we're affecting the welfare uh, or the life of that animal. It's, it reduces her welfare for the whole of her life. And so it's really important not to dog too short. Dr. Joan Lloyd speaking with Madeline McCosker. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's eight minutes to one. And I've been asking for your views on the new variety names for mangoes coming to supermarkets near you soon. They are yes. Aha, and now. Gary in Nambour says, for me, price will be the factor. I think that's a pretty common view to have. Gary, thanks for your text. Now, Fallon in Corumba said, I was wondering if Yoko Ono came up with the choices for the mango names. (laughs) I don't know. He says, as for the rats, you'd think that a fella would be safe from them on a boat in the middle of the river at Corumba. They are braving the crocodiles and bull sharks and sending boarding parties to the many vessels here. The Navy should be recruiting them as a SEAL unit. They're driving me crazy. Fallon, that sounds incredible. Thanks for sending me a text message. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. And yes, this week it's that time again. The tournament is heating up at Katmoy National Park to determine the fattest bear on Brooks River. The first bracket matches are done. 806 Junior, New Mum 901. And then the ones that were voted on yesterday, the victors were Grazer 128 and Bucky Dent. They're into the next round, but now they take on the big, big boys. 806 Junior may be on a winning streak, but this juvenile is now up against 32 Chunk, which Ranger Naomi Boak says is a tough competition. How do you talk about Chunk? He's enormous. This 18-year-old boar is a light bulb-shaped leviathan of a bear. I mean, since his early teens, he's been a really big bear. I mean, he's been a bear to watch in terms of size and also because of um, his potential dominance in the hierarchy. In 2023, 32 Chunk has not disappointed. He's outdone himself in growing his girth, and he's grown from a playful subadult to be one of the most dominant bears on the river. That is Chunk New Mum 901 will be facing off against 480 Otis. He is the winner of the original Fat Bear Tuesday, and three-time winner of Fat Bear Week. Um, He's a fan favorite and always a bear to contend with in this contest. At around 27 years old, he's one of the oldest bears on the river, and um, he's a wise and patient angler. He really is a survivor. I mean, we weren't sure that he was going to come back this year, but maybe we should have learned something from Otis's patience and been a bit more patient um, ourselves in expecting him to come back. Otis arrived in late July skinnier and and more frail than I think we've ever seen him. So it was really a bit worrisome. But in short order, Otis, the amazing angler that he is, used his zen-like style of fishing 
and he was catching up to 20 fish a day. There was a bear, bear cam fan who was keeping track of Otis's daily catch. So as you can see in those fat photos, Otis really did a job. He moves less to catch more and become again one of the biggest bears on the river. Otis is all about that efficiency. Now, in the second half of the bracket, one to eight Grazer will take on last year's winner. Mike Fitz introduces the one, the only Bear 747. He's been called the Bear Plane, Bear Force One, an absolute unit, and the incredible bulk. Few bears will ever grow as large as the bear who shares an identification number with a jet airplane. I'm talking about the defending Fat Bear Week champion, none other than Bear 747. Since 2004, when 747 was first identified, he has become one of the largest brown bears on earth. A few years ago, he was estimated to weigh about 1,400 pounds in September. That's more than 600 kilograms. I'm not sure he's that big this year, and Chunk actually might be bigger than him this year, but he still remains a giant of a bear. And his before and after photos from 2023 illustrate that he worked hard to prepare for hibernation. 747 faced consistent challenges from other large males like 856 and 32 Chunk this year. Does this signal that 747 is feeling the effects of age? He's more than 20 years old after all, or might he have determined that challenging Chunk in 856 wasn't worth the effort when he still had access to many productive fishing spots? Bear Force One, Bear 747. And 164 Bucky Dent will be up against my personal favourite, Bear 435, Holly. The beautiful figure of a bear that looks like a toasted marshmallow. Holly is a, a story that contains many different chapters in her life. Uh, it's, it can sometimes be filled with hardship, but also surprises and success. She's raised an injured yearling cub in 2007. Uh, that yearling bear is now known as 89 Backpack, and he continues to use Brooks River as an, a large adult male. And Holly adopted a lone yearling cub into our family. She cared for that cub and uh, her biological cub that summer weaned them both in the spring of 2016. Each of those bears are now successful adults. Uh, in 2020, that uh, bear suffered from porcupine quills in its front paw, but Holly was able to successfully care for that, that cub despite its ailment. And when the, the, the family returned in 2021, her cub appeared to be fully healed. Uh, this year, Holly returned to Brooks River as a single bear. She's leading a bachelorette's life right now, and it's afforded her the opportunity to concentrate on her own needs. But like other single female bears, she'll need ample body fat to survive winter hibernation and potentially give birth to a new litter of cubs in the den. There you have it. 435 Holly. They'll head into the semifinals next week before Fat Bear Tuesday, which is Wednesday for us. That's it for the Queensland Country Hour today. My name is Callie Buchanan. I've absolutely enjoyed my time with you over the past few weeks. Amy Phillips will be back on your radio from midday on Monday. In the meantime, get the latest rural news you need online at abc.net.au slash rural and tune in from a quarter past six to hear your local rural report. I hope you enjoy your weekend, however you're spending it. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and others. Right now, it's time for you to get the latest in ABC News. It is one o'clock.